More than 50 years ago, the Equal Pay Act was signed into law, which banned wage discrimination based on sex. But to this day, a wage gap still exists between men and women who do the same job, have similar experience, and education backgrounds. A Senate committee this week heard testimony regarding the Paycheck Fairness Act of 2014, an amendment to the original Equal Pay Act that seeks to close this gap further. I'm Bob Salzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we're looking at this wage gap, why it still exists, and what women, men, employees, and employers can do to change the problem. Our guests are labor economist at Indiana University, Lynn Duggan, and career coach Carolyn Dowd-Higgins. Join our conversation to learn more about all of this after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement offering undergraduate and advanced degrees, publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of The Herald Times. My co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael, is away today. More women than men are going to and graduating from college. The number of women CEOs, politicians, and executives increases every year. But women still make less than their male counterparts. In Indiana, a woman doing the same job as a man makes 70 cents for every dollar he makes. Today, we're going to look at what's causing the disparity and how the wage gap between men and women affects the workforce. Our guests are Lynn Duggan of Indiana University's Labor Studies Department and Caroline Dowd-Higgins, a career coach who advises women on ways to avoid the wage gap. You can join the discussion by calling 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. Or you can join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So I want to welcome our guest, Lynn. Thanks for being in the studio. And Caroline is joining us by phone. And uh, all of you folks out there, if you're uh, women who have experienced this wage gap, we certainly hope to hear from you and we'll, we'll have as much advice as we can give you. And I want to start with Caroline, who uh, is a career coach and advises women on ways to avoid the wage gap. So let's start with a definition, Caroline. How would you define this wage gap? What's, what's the issue? Well, you know, one of the issues right now, Bob, uh, there are a lot of statistics out there, and what we're, we're hearing consistently is that women are earning 77 cents to the dollar of every man. And I think the, the bottom line is it starts at the beginning when a woman accepts a job, she often says, thank you, and she doesn't even consider negotiating that starting salary. And that really impacts her long-term 
earning potential. And likewise, throughout the, the course of her career life, she often doesn't consider asking for promotions and upgrades where men are much more eager to dive in and ask for those promotional opportunities. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as a, a person who hires, I got I to gotta say that, you know, generally, um, you know, in our business anyway, it's not easy to come in and ask somebody to ask for a raise, man, woman, whatever. It's just, uh, you know, maybe in some industries it's different, but, you know, it really doesn't matter what gender somebody is. It's, it's based on experience. But that's, you're saying that's not really the case in a lot of places. No, I agree. It is hard to ask. There's yeah. no doubt about it. And it's got to be a bit of a cultural shift, and you've got to have a lot of self-confidence. What I would encourage everyone, men and women, uh, especially women, because they're not asking as much as men, is to think about the value that they bring to the table. So it's not about what I want. It's not gimme, gimme. It's let me tell you why I am valuable to this organization and why I am worthy of an advancement opportunity. Again, sometimes uh, women just let the momentum of the career carry them away, and they don't raise their hand and uh, consider their worth in the equation of the organization. Mm-hmm. And, and I think part of what we're talking about is, you know, let's, let's sort of hone in on the notion of, you know, if people are doing the same job, they should be paid the same money, basically. And, um, you know, so how, how common is it that, you know, if you have you know, a, a woman employee in a firm, and they're doing basically exactly the same work. And I don't, I, you know, journalism is what I know about. So you've got a reporter with the same experience, and uh, who's a woman, and a reporter with the same experience, who's a man. Uh, they should be making the same amount. I mean, how common is it that they're not? Yeah, it's very common. So let me just jump in and say one of the issues is is what we call salary secrecy, right? Uh, For public institutions where there is public record of what what salaries are, it's a lot easier to do some sleuthing to find out what the salary ranges are for respective positions. Uh, In the private sector, not as much, right? And you don't always have the liberty of knowing what your colleagues at the same level, meaning the same rank, the same title, the same job classification are making. So that salary secrecy prevents people from asking for what other people are getting, right, or what those, mm-hmm. those higher rates are. And again, um, the starting salary is so key. And quite often, especially in a down economy, people, especially women, say, thank you for the job. I'm so happy to be employed that it doesn't occur to them to negotiate up. Even an incremental notch can have a significant impact on your long-term earning. Mm-hmm. And it is, uh, you know, again, I'll tell you from where I said it's important to get that up front because you'd never know when the next race is going to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. If you have questions or comments, please join us at 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. Lynn Duggan is here in the studio with us. Lynn, you've heard, you know, the conversation so far. Do you have some things you want to add about this, you know, wage gap? Well, let me first say that salary secrecy is actually illegal, or employers can't enforce salary secrecy, according to the National Labor Relations Act, which gives us um, the right to discuss our terms and conditions of employment. So even though Lily Ledbetter um, was told by Goodyear that she couldn't ask her employers, or her fellow employees, sorry, how much they made, um, and that set her back a decade in terms of being able to find out that she was grossly underpaid. That actually wasn't legal of Goodyear to be doing. Mm-hmm. It, it does seem like, I, mean, I always assume that people who you know work 
you know, our newsroom are going to ask what their colleagues are making just to make sure. Is that I would think that'd be a common thing within work groups. It's a touchy subject. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah it is. It is. I, I, has I, to do with self worth, <laughs> right? I guess. I, I mean, I know that it's not something that probably people are that comfortable talking about. But I also don't think that. Uh, I don't know. I don't. Uh, again, I'm t- drawn on my own experience. I always assume, as a supervisor, that I better pay people, you know, comparably and what their colleagues are making because they're going to find out. I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. So it. Yeah. So it's definitely their right to know. And but when employers are, um, you know, on top of this being a touchy subject, they're actually insisting that uh, it's not employees' right to talk about it. Then um, it easily just gets passed. Mm-hmm. Caroline. Yeah, I would love to chime in and say that from a career coaching perspective, it's important for the individual to know that there are ways that they can gain this information. And, and Lynn's point is really valid. It is illegal to with, withhold this information. So the Department of Labor, for example, has a wonderful resource called the Occupational Outlook Handbook, which used to be this massive paper edition, which is now happily online. And that's a great way to look at salary ranges. And what I really like about that resource, it also um, uh, customizes based on geographic area. So, for example, what one is earning in Indiana will be entirely different than what one is earning in the same field in New York City because of the cost of living, right, and the geographic variance. And while it can't pinpoint exactly what you're going to earn, it can give you a range which will empower you in the negotiation process. And there are a lot of other resources, too. Salary.com, for example, is, is a very um, widely used resources for people that are in the job market and, and uh, negotiating those salaries. And I also think, too, as, as a candidate in a role, right, it's incumbent upon you to do that kind of research and ask some questions. You cannot ask them in the interview. That's, that's inappropriate. However, in the informational interview stage, when you're gathering information about an organization, that's the time when you can ask about salary ranges. Mm-hmm. All right. We, are, uh, we have a phone call already from uh, Nashville, and it's Lyle who's on the phone. Lyle? Yes. Hey, go right ahead. Okay. Um, I just uh, thought of something while you were speaking there, something that should be considered in the uh, discussion. Um, as a postal worker for several years, and, and uh, my brother works in a, a, a factory uh, building cars, any place where you find a union, a good union, like the postal service, I can't think of a job anywhere that I did that uh, a woman would bid on and get anything paid less. So uh, I think one of the things that a woman might consider when she's going to the workforce is if the place is unionized or not, almost guarantee a fair um, fight there. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was it. All right, Lyle. Thanks a lot for the call. Yeah. All right. Very good point. Yeah, I just wanted to get your reactions. Yeah, he's right. That definitely levels the playing field. And, and some professions are unionized and, and some are not, but he's spot on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unions do a much better job of... Um, of leveling the playing field uh, among workers in the union mm-hmm. than uh, just out there at large. Right. So, what what are the you know the main reasons? I you know I've looked over a lot of data that that uh, you know where this is you know there was a law. What, when was the first law passed that said that men and women need to be paid equally? Did somebody tell me that. Do you remember? It was. Seems like it was. Well, was it the original Civil Rights Act? Do you know, Caroline? 
That's an excellent question. I, <laughs> I hesitate to speak to that because I cannot name that uh, for sure. So yeah. let's well, see if I'm we so can look that numbers. up while we're it all talking the, here. It was either the 1967 edition of Sex to the Civil Rights Act or it was the Civil Rights Act. Itself. Well, I will say that the, a- the AAUW, which has a lot of data on this, uh, one of these documents I'm looking at here says 50 years after passage of the Equal Pay Act. So I guess we're talking 50 years ago. Um, the Equal Pay Act, and this was from 2013. Yeah, so, Equal Pay Act, right. So if the Equal Pay Act was you know, passed in 2013, why aren't we – Don't why haven't we even the playing field yet? Well, you know, um, let me just say that some people think that um, most of what we talk about when we talk about the gender pay gap <coughs> – excuse me – is um, – men and women who work in the same jobs. And that is not um, the definition of the uh, gender pay gap. The gender pay gap is the percentage by which men are paid more than women in general throughout the economy, throughout the labor force, men and women who are employed full-time. And it Mm -hmm. doesn't include part-time workers. It compares the median income of, you know, the median man to the median woman. So the woman who falls right in the middle of all full-time working women to the man who falls right in the middle. So 50% of all women uh, who work full-time earn more than her, 50% of women earn less than her. She, And so, um, so it leaves out people who work overtime a whole lot, and it leaves out uh, the big kahunas at the top of the pay scale by looking at the median man and the median woman. Mm-hmm. And um, And so it's... It's really, uh, I mean, the Civil Rights Act and the Equal Opportunities Employment Commission is supposed to ensure and enforce non-discrimination. It does happen nevertheless, but most of the pay gap is explained by the fact that men and women work in very different jobs. So there's more and more women who are professionals these days. About half of all professionals are women at this point. But um, uh, there's... um, a whole bunch of jobs that don't require a college degree, which have not been integrated. So jobs that provide a decent living for men, um, many of these are union jobs, in fact, and women just haven't made it in there, in fact, uh, partly because of gender roles. Um, It's illegal for unions to keep women out, and mostly they do encourage women to come in. But so women have had less success at breaking into jobs like construction trades, transportation, utilities, police and firefighting, commission sales, and machine repair. So these are really important because that means that women um, who have no recognizable uh, skills that are recognizable to employers, um, in part because the, the things that women are trained to do at home are not paid in the home, and so they're regarded as unskilled because they're equated with unpaid work like sewing and cooking and childcare. And so um, these jobs are paid a lot less, the jobs that women do qualify for, jobs um, or the jobs that women are channeled into, let's say. Uh, so jobs in um, uh, secretary, secretarial work, uh, administrative work, clerical work. Teaching is paid better, but it doesn't pay the, get paid the corresponding amount as a, as a guy who would have the same ed- education and go into something like, um, uh, you know, business. Mm-hmm. Caroline? 
Yeah. yeah. In fact, Lynn, it brings up a really good point. There's a there's a phrase that we banter about in, in the career development industry. Women tend to work in lower wage, what we call pink collar jobs, right? As she was mentioning, teaching, nursing, childcare, administrative, clerical, right? We all know the term STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Sometimes we call it STEM, and we incorporate informatics, like our Indiana University School of Informatics. These high-tech jobs um, are are money-making jobs, right? And they are right now really predominantly um, a male-driven industry. So I think women are not in those sectors as much. I also want to speak to the legal profession. Uh, I have a, have a lot of experience in the legal profession, and in law schools now, we see 50% of admitted students in law schools as women, which is incredibly encouraging, but women are leaving the legal profession in droves. So a lot is happening in the professional landscape, and I think uh, Lynn's point is really well taken. It's where are the women working, and that's part of this uh, monetary uh, discrepancy, right? Women are not necessarily earning as much because they're not in those high-paying fields. Mm-hmm. Well, I want, I well, want they to, are, they oh, are in the high-paying field, fields. Um, increasingly, women are about half of professionals. Uh, in fact, um, a guy named Robert Drago, who's written the book um, Striking a Balance, Work, Family, and Life, he, he writes about a couple of trends that are really quite disconcerting. Uh, there's becoming a clearer and clearer dividing line between two groups of women, one of which are mothers and the other is not mothers. Mm-hmm. And mothers are the ones who are in those low-wage jobs. So the proportion of mothers in the U.S. who fall into a very low-wage group that earns just above the minimum wage is at least 42% today. Mm-hmm. 42% of mothers are there. Whereas if you look at um, a group called Ideal Workers – which is um, people who have a BA and um, are willing to work more than 45 hours a week or do consistently work more than 45 hours a week. Um, That group has grown uh, over the past three decades. It was um, about 77% of the labor force in 1977. And now, um, as of about 2002, that percentage is 17%. So we have more and more of these people who have BAs and um, devote themselves really to their jobs. They're willing to be bothered uh, in their private jobs, their private lives, sorry, by their jobs. Um, They have short vacations. They uh, get interrupted on weeknights and weekends. And whereas they used to be men, they're increasingly women. About half of this group is women now. So, um, are they mothers? No. By about 2002, only 7% of this group were mothers. So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about uh, giving up motherhood in order to succeed at the job, or at least giving it up temporarily if you're a professional, and especially these days since the Great Recession, where it seems to me that people are putting in longer and longer hours and students are just assuming that that's, that's what they're going to have mm-hmm. to do is work 50 and 60 hours a week. 
I want to I want to follow up on that, and I also want to follow up on uh, the legal profession. But first, I need to remind our listeners that uh, today we're talking about gender-based wage discrimination. Are men and women paid differently at your job? If you want to join our discussion, you can call us at eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, or toll free one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can also tweet uh, to us at noon edition. Uh, Lynn, I wanted to follow up on the ideal workers. Uh, it sounds as if you're talking about people who are in professional or exempt categories that are working more than 45 hours a week because it would be, it would be you know, they would be eligible for overtime if they were not in an exempt category. Yeah, so they report that they work more than 45 hours a week in mm-hmm. surveys. In, in the, the people who are actually paid a salary, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Now, there is a movement uh, afoot. Uh, President Obama has talked about, I think, some of these workers and the fact that they're being, people are being taken advantage of with, with management titles and management roles who may not really be management just so, so uh, you know, a company can get that. 45, 50, 55 hour a week person for, you know, less less money without paying them overtime. Is this something you, you know, you would support? Do you see this as a problem? That's a terrible problem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. No, there just aren't enough good jobs in this economy. There aren't enough jobs, period. And it's my own theory that what we need to do is reduce work hours per person, so that we have more jobs for everyone, so that everyone can be parents, in fact. And uh, they don't have to um, strive for some time after they've put in their um, uh, 10 or 20 years working 50 to 60 hours a week and hope that they're still biologically fertile after that. Mm-hmm. Caroline, what, what, yeah, what about you? Yeah, you know, you bring up such a good point. It's fascinating, especially for women, because obviously they are bearing the children, right? This is something that men just cannot do. So the reality is, especially in, in those intense work environments, as you mentioned, uh, the professions, right, maybe the financial industry or the medical industry or the legal industry, where there's somewhat of a, a hazing period that first several years where you're working 90 hours a week, right? You're the new talent pool. Uh, it's impossible to, to have a personal life. It's impossible to, to raise a family at that point, which is why we see many young women in their um, late 20s and early 30s leaving the profession. And I love the idea of saying, how do we share uh, this full-time opportunity and divvy it up, perhaps, between two or three women? And, and by the way, men are, are screaming about this, too. It's not just women. Uh, so I think there are some progressive organizations out there, and it's a, these are baby steps, but I think they're in the right direction, that it doesn't have to be one person that's working 90 hours a week. You know, perhaps there's a way to divide that amongst uh, more than one individual and retain great talent. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to ask you about the legal profession, because one of the documents I, I was looking at talks about the American Bar Association's task force on gender equity mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that it's determined that, that there is gender inequality in pay. You know, four lawyers, and, and um, let me quote former ABA President Laurel, Laurel Bellows, 
um, who actually said female lawyers are not immune to pay disparities. Many of us have watched as male colleagues have advanced their careers and earnings in ways that we have been denied because of nothing more than an implicit bias. Female equity partners in the 200 largest firms who do comparable work to men earn 89 percent of the compensation of their male peers. So um, it, it sounds as if you know this is an area where – uh, at least the ABA is looking at it and saying this mm-hmm. is e- equal pay for unequal or e- unequal pay for equal work. Right, right. And I would say that, that lawyers, all of us, right, all women, uh, especially lawyers who are trained in negotiation, need to advocate on behalf of themselves. I think one of the problems for women is that we don't often speak up. Again, we suffer in silence, and that's not good. I, I really believe that women... Everyone, certainly, but we're talking about about gender equity here. I think women need to advocate on behalf of themselves and understand what their value is in their organization and, and learn the art of negotiation. And I've got some great resources that I share with women because it's not something you're going to learn overnight. You've got to practice and you've really got to come up to speed. It's a skill, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it takes time to master that and confidence. Mm-hmm. This issue that, that Lynn and I were talking about with the ideal worker, um, what you know, what do you counsel you know the people that you're counseling about their career? What do you talk to them about when you know they could get into a job that's that and it may be a management job, so to speak, but maybe it only pays thirty thousand dollars and they're expected to work sixty hours a week. Mm-hmm, I mean, do you mm-hmm. do you sort of counsel them? A, to well, be careful for that? Well, well, yes, absolutely. So the first thing is we realize that sometimes there's a point in your life that you just need the money, whatever it is, coming in, right? So you have to assess your situation, and sometimes that's the job you need right now because it's there, and it helps you pay the bills. However, I think as a, as a career coach, I'm always telling my clients and the people with whom I work that you've got to always be planning for your growth strategy or your exit strategy, and you never really know what may come first. First, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times there are casualties in mergers and acquisitions where, where one loses a job because they've been downsized, right? So you always have to be planning for that next step. But as far as the exploitation of managers, absolutely, you need to look for a better situation. Uh, the longer you stay there, the longer you will be exploited. Mm-hmm. All right. We're talking about um, how nationally women still make less money than men for the same job and also just as a group, women and make less money than men for other reasons, whether they're in the same job or different jobs. Um, We want you to share your thoughts on this topic. You can join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, or you can join it on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can give us a call, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. 
It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, and we're talking about the gender pay gap. And I want to give you a, a couple of quick statistics here since we're located in uh, Bloomington. Um, fact is, in the Ninth District of Indiana, uh, based on a study by uh, the AAUW, um, 40 men, um, I think the median salary for men is 41825 $6 in the 9th District where we're located, and for women, it's $32,992, or 79% of what men make. So that's the kind of issue we're talking about, and it's happening right here in Bloomington and the rest of the 9th District. Our guests today are Lynn Duggan of Indiana University's Labor Studies Department and Caroline Dowd Higgins, a career coach who advises women on ways to avoid the wage gap. If you want to join us, please call us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area. You can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can also follow us on Twitter <coughs> at noon edition. And I want to ask Lynn to talk uh, a little bit about the you know any structural barriers that might be in place that are, are sort of keeping this as a persistent problem. Yeah, I think that in this country, we it, maybe it stems from the frontier mentality, but we have this can-do approach, like um, a, the, Rosie the, Riveter, the Rosie the Riveter image of a woman in a bandana doing war industry production, filling in for men. Um, and so we tend to think the individual uh, can surmount all obstacles. And that's definitely not the case. Um, you know, if, people, if someone has obstacles, then of course they're, if they're competing against someone who doesn't have these obstacles, then uh, they're not going to compete as well on average. So um, people tend to think that women are making free choices not to pursue a career or a better paying occupation. And this is taking the history of laws and how our economy used to be divided into gender spheres, taking all that out of the picture and putting the focus on individuals. So uh, there are important norms that, that keep women um, the ones who are primarily responsible for children. And some of them are really very ugly. Um, there's, there's sort of a, a sexual or gender harassment norm uh, which happens in, in jobs that um, tend to be more uh, blue-collar jobs that tend to keep women out of those blue-collar jobs. So maybe it's not just that women are um, crowding into secretarial work and uh, health care, et cetera, because um, that's their dream job, but because there's safety in numbers. Uh, another kind of norm that we have is the motherhood norm, which dictates that women should be mothers and should perform unpaid care and low-paid care for others. And, and then we also buy into that ideal worker norm, that we should all be totally committed to our vacation and career. And that goes along with kind of an individualist norm, especially in this country, this belief that government should not be helping those who need care, even when the economy is letting them down. Mm -hmm. um, we have a, um, somebody who 
joined us on Twitter, Laurel, who joined us on Twitter, and she has a question. She's she's actually in the healthcare industry, and Caroline, I think she is addressing this to you. Any tips for negotiating higher salary as a new RN? She's graduating with an associate's degree in May. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let me just toggle back to what Lynn was saying. I agree with you 100%, Lynn. But for this Twitter question, I would say we can make incremental baby steps one woman at a time because I believe that we need to change the culture. And I believe that women need the self-confidence to say, I can ask for something more. So to empower this this woman who is pursuing uh, the nursing field, I would say find a mentor who is an experienced nurse, right? And, And find out what the salary ranges are with the organizations to which you are applying so you know what you're dealing with and ask for more when you get that starting salary. Bottom line is, if you don't ask, you will never get it. And the worst thing that could happen is that you're turned down and you get the salary that they set for you. Remember, too, uh, it takes practice. Uh, one of my favorite resources is a, is a website called She Negotiates. Uh, she negotiates and changes everything, and they actually have tutorial videos, and they have worksheets where you can plot script lines and, and really practice what to say. Because as I said, this may take you out of a comfort zone, and that's okay. You need to learn how to negotiate. I would also add that there are other variables which can be very valuable to an individual beyond salary. You know, it, it boils down to what is important in your life. It may be flexibility uh, in the shifts that you work. It may be vacation time. It could be a parking space. It could be an ergonomic desk and chair. I mean, you name it. That's how specific you can get with negotiation. And you need to be prepared if you are a strong candidate and you have an offer on the table to come up with a counter offer. So, yes, absolutely negotiate. I wanted to respond to that because, um, Caroline, I was just talking with somebody, uh, a young man, actually, who, who switched jobs. And he was advised going into his new position that uh, you're not going to make much headway asking for more money. But if you ask for more than they're going to offer you on vacation – you're likely to get it. There so, you go. Right. Yeah, so there, right. there are other things that one can negotiate. And again, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you were unsuccessful because you asked and were not granted. You set up a different expectation, right? And you're also saying, I am valuable when, when you enter that organization. So no doesn't always mean no now. I'll give you another uh, example. Uh, I've used this myself, right? So when I was negotiating a new opportunity, uh, at the time that I was coming into the organization, the budget just wasn't there. So I I wove into the negotiation that with an exceptional performance review, which meant that I needed to put skin in the game and prove my value at this organization, in the next fiscal year, we wrote into the contract a very specific fee, right, that that was above and beyond the typical percentage of that organization. So you can can negotiate in advance. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, We have a phone call, so let's go to Dave. Dave's from Bloomington. Hello. Hey, Dave. Well, I don't want to throw cold water on this, but I just have a, a question. I, earlier in the conversation, uh, someone was talking about uh, a period where they were a junior partner or initially going through an initial time where you were getting a little flack from the organization just to see if you were going to stick it out. And, and uh, then we talked about negotiating and asking for and, uh, you know, representing yourself in a strong fashion, and I wonder if there are times when that's a problem. And then I also wonder if there aren't, if it isn't necessary for 
senior partners and for people in the organization that actually come up with the impetus for some of these changes that we're talking about in terms of, you know, valuing employees. Mm-hmm. All right. Which one of you wants to take this first? I'm not sure I understand the first part of the question. Okay. Can you restate that? I, I'll say very quickly that, yes, senior leadership in an organization should absolutely get involved in in uh, salary equity. Okay. The, I think the first part of the question is, are there times in a employee's relationship with an employer when asking for more for themselves would be seen as a bad thing by the organization? Well, as I said earlier, and just for full clarity, it's not just I want more. Here's how I can prove to you why I am valuable to the organization and why I am earning more, right? It's not just I want more money. It is let me prove, prove to you why I am valuable in perhaps the bottom line or the productivity or the efficiency of the organization, right? And, and yes, to be really, really candid, there are times where it's just not financially feasible, where you have to take one with the team because no one is uh, earning a raise that year, for example. However, I think sadly, uh, most women and many men tend to never ask because they are just fearful of being turned down. And it never hurts to ask if you ask appropriately. All right, Dave. Mm -hmm. Is that good? All right. Well, we appreciate your call. Uh-huh. All right. The phone numbers again are eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight outside of the local calling area. You can also join us on WFIU.org slash noon edition or on Twitter at noon edition. Um I wanted to go through, you know, a few of these statistics from the American Association of University of Women just to set up some of the issues that are involved. I mean one is that the the pay gap hasn't changed in uh, the last decade. It's been it's stuck at about 77%. That's one thing that uh, the AAUW says. Another is that you know every state experiences a pay gap, but some states are a lot worse than others. And I wonder if either one of you, first of all, has done any kind of you know, work or studying you know, why one state might be better than another. Caroline, do you... Yeah, I, I don't know that I can speak to to state legislature, uh, but I can speak anecdotally because my coaching practice is national, mm-hmm. and I find that women on the east and west coasts are uh, successful, more successful in their negotiating of salaries. Now, again, it may be the industries in which they are working. Uh, certainly, high tech in Silicon Valley, uh, it's a hot field, and and women are the minority there, and and frankly, employers are looking for women, and they're looking to uh, groom women into leadership roles. So that's an anecdotal uh, experience that I can speak to. Um, Perhaps Lynn has more uh, research-based information to share. Uh, Yeah. In fact, the um, Institute for Women's Policy Research uh, did a study, the status of women in the states, um, uh, did different studies of women's situation, the pay gap, um, reproductive rights, uh, women's political power in all of the different states. And Indiana ranked fourth from the bottom, I believe that was, in um, 2008. So at that time, women's earnings were 67% of men's earnings, and we're still very close to the bottom. We're um, fifth from the bottom at this point. Uh, Our earnings are 73% of men's earnings. 
um, using 2012 data now. So the reason that they were giving back in 2000 when they did the study was that um, women have not made inroads into government and business. Uh, The fact that, that we have a smaller public sector in Indiana has something to do with this. So it's um, the District of Columbia that has the best uh, gender pay ratio. That's what I was going to say. I think uh, on this um, sheet it says that pay equity in Washington, D.C. is about 90 percent of what men make, which is much better than mm-hmm. most places. And that would, would – and also, you know, we're doing we, – you talked – you mentioned briefly uh, before about – uh, salary secrecy and how in the public sector it's not so much anymore. And, you know, we we newspaper folks are trying to make sure that happens by publishing databases of what people make in public sector. Uh, we happen to, at the Herald Times, we're going to be publishing salaries for city and county employees on Sunday this week, uh, stories about it, and then uh, have a database online. Um, but in those – in the city and the county in Bloomington, and I think this happens in a lot of government – there are very um, clear uh, processes and pay ranges and whatnot that that they really have to stick to. I think they're. I think I think government may be much more in tune with this than private, the private sector. Caroline, would you agree with that? Uh, yes, mm-hmm. yes, and and I want to throw a little bit of a curveball in here that I that I believe is is absolutely relevant. So so one of the issues that we're seeing too is that women are not applying for jobs because they do not feel that they are prepared enough. So again, I'll give you an example from um, the coaching world. Uh, let's say there are 10 qualifying factors in a job description. A woman will apply if she meets eight out of the 10, where a gentleman will apply if he meets five, at least five, right? Where a guy is much more willing, and again, I'm broad brushing this, uh, much more willing to take a chance and learn on the job, where women traditionally say, I've got to be really ready. I've got to be the, the expert ready for this opportunity. And I think that's preventing them from uh, getting into certain fields because they're just not willing to take a risk. They don't think they're ready enough. It, it, it's a problem that we see with leadership. It's a problem with w- women in politics, for example. And uh, we need to learn from the men, frankly. Let's take a risk. Let's try something new. Mm-hmm. And, and give it a shot and, and own the fact that you're smart and then you can learn on the job. And I can tell, having, tell you, having been on the hiring end as the employer, you know, there is no perfect candidate. And if there was, they're wired and you would have hired them internally already. Right. All right. We have a phone call. So let's go to Brandon from Bloomington. Brandon? Hello. How you doing? Hey, doing fine. Thanks. Go ahead. Oh, hey, I appreciate you addressing the various states and the private sectors. Uh, I have a question. Uh, a friend of mine uh, joined the military, and she was uh, a close friend from high school. And uh, I was just wondering if your research delved into the uh, situation with uh, combat. I know a lot of females are uh, willing to get into combat, and I didn't know if there was still any kind of discrimination between the uh, between a male or female in the in the military. That's a good. Ha- have Have we ever addressed the military structure on the differential between a male or female soldier? Very good question, Lynn. Well, I'm just frantically paging through the um, American Association of University Women's study that just came out in 2014 to see if there's uh, anything in here in the military. And 
Yeah, I don't really see it. I'm sorry. Um, would they fall into the public sector? I would think so, yeah. Yeah, so I think well, basically I public curious, sector jobs uh, are much better well, in terms of Well, I mean, I know there's jobs with the Department of Defense and uh, various bases throughout our our continental. Uh-huh, states, sure. I, I didn't know if there was anything uh, related to combat or uh, a female soldier paid as much as a male soldier on the front line. Well, I would hope so. Caroline, what do you think? Yes, uh, my goodness, I cannot speak to that. It's a great question, and I agree with you 100%. I sure as heck hope so, yeah. Well, I just wanted to, I just wanted to ask you, but thank you for taking my call. Thanks. It's a good issue, Brandon. Thanks for bringing it up. Thank you. Have a good weekend. All right, you too. So we're talking about uh, gender equality and uh, the wage gap that still exists between men and women. What do you think ought to be done about this issue? If you have any thoughts or um, opinions, please give us a call, 855-0811 or toll-free, 1-877-285-9348. And you can also take part in a live chat, wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. You know, I, I open the program by talking about how, you know, more and more women, females, are going to college. I think if you looked at uh, the enrollment at IU, I think it would probably be about 53% female and maybe even higher than that. Um, is this making a difference? Is this, is this helping bring this gender gap a little bit or tightening it up a little bit, Caroline? Well, certainly more women are entering the workforce. There's no doubt about it. And as Lynn referred to earlier, more women are entering the professions. So we can only hope. What what I find interesting, though, when we look at the generational scope, uh, women are also leaving the workforce. And a lot of times that impacts when and if they decide to have a family. So these are issues that we need to deal with on um, on a national level. How do how do we deal with family leave? How do we deal with child care? All of those impact uh, the career world at large. Mm-hmm. Lynn, yeah, it really is motherhood that uh, makes for a much larger gap in pay at some point in people's lives. Um, so people who are graduating from college start out at uh, you know near parity. Um, women make something like 92% of what men make with a college degree. Um, But I'm looking at a chart here in this AAUW study, which shows that um, uh, women at 20 to 24 years old have an 89% um, median weekly earnings ratio to men's. By um, 35 to 44 years of age, it's down to 78%. Okay, so to me, that says one thing. That says, you know, they had to leave the labor force. They had to uh, fulfill some primary parent role. Because why would they be starting out? This isn't a time series study, but I do think we can see something about um, what happens to women over their lifespans when we compare these different cohorts. Right. I'd like to also add there's a phenomenon that we call in the career development, the career coaching world, the mommy track. And it's a negative connotation in that women who are in the career world and take time off to raise their children or even take a maternity leave, for, for that matter, are often mommy tracked by their organization. And it hampers their opportunity to advance 
or seek out leadership roles. And this is a real problem because uh, having children should not be something that a woman is punished for. And uh, again, we're systematically trying to change a culture. There are some very enlightened organizations, uh, many of which are led by women. And I think until we, we break that code, this is, this is a huge problem for women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I totally agree. There's a question that we, we need to deal with as a, as a society, which is how are we going to organize care in the future? So, you know, now that women are freer to choose professions, we still seem to be picking our way through a minefield trying to find jobs where it's possible to, um, uh, to enjoy our careers and our personal lives. Right, right. One other point made by the uh, American Association of University of Women is that the pay gap is, is worse for women of color. It uh, notes that um, the, pay, the shortfall is – uh, that Asian American women's salaries show the smallest pay gap at 87% of white men's earnings. Uh, Hispanic women's salaries show the largest gap at 53% of white men's earnings. So, Caroline, I wonder, you know, can you talk about uh, that, um, you know, the, the issues with women of color? Absolutely. Again, um, from a coaching experience, you know, which again is a very particular lens that I look through this. Um, many of the women that uh, I work with are young women who are first-generation college graduates, and they are so excited about getting that opportunity, it would never occur to them to negotiate that starting salary. So again, I, I don't want to stereotype. I just want to say that women need to be empowered, especially those that are that are first in their family, to attend university and perhaps pursue a professional track that that uh, they have the right and they should negotiate their salary throughout their career lives. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have a comment from the live chat. Uh, somebody wants to have a, uh, both of you discuss social services in the nonprofit sector where salaries are very low and a lot of women seem to work. Caroline? Yeah, I mean, it just breaks my heart that these these are such important roles. They're they're emotionally taxing. They're uh, they can be stressful and debilitating, and they're it's important work in our society. There's no doubt about it, and they're low paying. You know, I I would also say the the teaching profession, education, is is integral into uh, our culture at large. Yet they are very low paying jobs. We've been talking about this in in um, State of the Union speeches for as long <laughs> as I can remember. Pick a party, right? It, it's a problem, and and I think this needs to be changed on the systemic national level. And uh, I look at the the advanced degrees, for example, that are required in many of these positions. I'm, I'm thinking about a master's in social work, you know, an advanced degree. Think about the college debt alone that one is dealing with in that profession. I look at teachers who cannot get uh, mortgages or loans because their college debts are so high. It's a huge problem, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and we need to be able to address this at a national level. Mm-hmm. Lynn? Yeah, well, I would mm-hmm. say that other states are doing a better job in terms of um, social services because their governors have not um, banned collective bargaining for public sector workers. So that's made it better, um, the working conditions and pay better for, um, for that occupation, which tends to be mostly women. Uh, and, you know, the nonprofit sector... Um, it's been somewhat of a black box because we think of – that's one of those fields where we think of people as really just um, wanting to make a contribution and um, do what they love. And, uh, you know, women, in fact, tend to, to do volunteer work and tend to be the ones who 
um, who uh, men might go into fi- the financial sector and women might go into n- the nonprofit sector. They just sort of go along with heart versus, um, you know, mm-hmm. high competition. Mm-hmm. And um, and so so it's really important to start shining the light on that. Um, so the fact that we don't take care of people very well in our society. Um, you know, we want low taxes. We have this ind- individualist norm. Uh, you know, believing that government shouldn't, we shouldn't need government's help. Um, and so we want to impose that on other people, even though uh, they might need government's help. And, um, and so, so I think that's something that we really need to look at as a society. Why is it that the U.S. is such an outlier when it comes to public assistance? All right. Very quickly, we have two, about two minutes to go, and we have a uh, we have somebody on live chat, and we have a call. So, live chat first. Uh, are employers more likely to take a chance on a man rather than a woman? This is from Theodora, who's going back to the qualification issue that Caroline talked about earlier. Caroline. Uh, again, it, it's how you uh, position yourself. So I would say, yeah, if the man says, this is why I believe that I'll be great at this job and, and take a risk on me, absolutely. So the woman's got to say the same thing. You've got to create your story and market yourself. Okay. And let's go to the phone. Pat from Terre Haute. Pat, we have about a minute and a half. Well, I uh, watched Makers last night on PBS, mm. and uh, relevant to what we're talking about here, I think it goes um, to uh, the question of having elected uh, people who uh, are going to support uh, women um, on the program. It was uh, uh, told about Phyllis Shafley, a conservative woman who um, really worked hard to block the uh, ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment uh, uh, for women, and uh, then how uh, President Nixon vetoed a child care bill which would have helped women tremendously uh, in the workforce to have quality child care. So I think we need to be thinking of uh, electing progressive women who are going to be supporting women and families. And uh, not just, uh, you know, big business. All right. We're going to let Pat have the last word because we're out of time. Sorry. Thank you, Pat. (laughs) Yeah, amen. (laughs) I want to thank Lynn Duggan and Caroline Dowd-Higgins for being here with us today. You guys were both great guests. For producer Claire McInerney, engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net and from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement, offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. 
publichealth.indiana.edu.